Well, it's been a while since I've been here. I see y'all have, have uh, not lacked any enthusiasm. <laughs> I want us to think this morning around the topic, think and pray around the topic, breaking out of the box, breaking out of the box. Um, from the beginning, God called his people to be a movement. Just think about that. He called his people to be a movement, not an establishment. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, and I pray that you will open our minds and open our hearts to give us new insight and motivation to be your people about missions. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a movement is a great thing. Um, it, uh, but it requires some organization to kind of keep it together, like a 501c3 and, and whatnot. And because it, every movement has a function in a particular cultural context, a particular social context. And so this organizational aspect is what I call the institutional aspect. As long as it, the institution serves the movement, then it is part of the movement. So you have the institution, but it is there to serve the movement. Got it? But when the institution serves itself, it becomes an establishment. Now, the movement is committed to the cause regardless of the cause. So we're the movement. We're about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't, we, it doesn't matter too much how much it costs us. It's all right, as long as God gets the glory. But an establishment seeks the sweet spot. And what's the sweet spot? It is a place of least social and cultural difficulty. It's in the place where you are hassled the least. And an establishment will even come against anything that threatens its status in the sweet spot, even if it was the movement it was supposed to support. Think about the church, the true people of God throughout the the centuries, the prophets in the Old Testament, they were, they went under great difficulty, even from the establishment church. Israel was called to be a movement, to be God's movement, for the light, to bring light to the nations. God was to be their king. But they insisted on being an establishment with a human king, just like the other nations. Remember that? And as a result, they split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was obliterated by Assyria in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive into Babylon in 539 BC. When, the, when Judah returned to their land, they vowed that they would be faithful to God. If you read, uh, what is it, Nehemiah chapter 9, they made this big renewed covenant. They're going to be faithful. They're going to do it all right. But they ended up creating their own establishment based on tradition, which boxed them in. And when Jesus came, they had him crucified because he threatened the sweet spot that they were in. Today, too many churches have degenerated into establishments. In other words, they've allowed themselves to be boxed in. 
And this has had a negative effect on the mission of the church, especially the American church. So if we're going to do right, we must break out of our church box if we are going to fulfill the Great Commission. There's things we're used to doing, but you go somewhere else and they don't do things like that. The history of this society has many examples of the positive influence of the Bible-believing church. At one time in this country, there was what Francis Schaeffer used to call the Christian consensus. That is, everybody basically agreed with Christianity. That's not to say that everybody was true to Christianity, but there was a general agreement that Christianity was true. However, today, the Christian consensus has evaporated. We act so many times, we act as if we, as if the Christian consensus is still there, but it's not there anymore. We together who follow Jesus Christ are a distinct cultural minority and increasingly coming under hostility. But that's all right. God is on his throne. Let the whole earth keep silent before him. A growing number of people are moving beyond the theological reach of the church. And why? Because their legitimate core concerns have not been adequately addressed biblically. And what's a core concern? It is a life-defining, life-controlling value and or issue. Because instead of engaging the culture, it seems that much of us in the church have fallen into cultural captivity. And as a result, much of the Bible-believing church establishment remains confined in its own church box. People outside the box have fallen, have been orphaned by the church. Uh, they have fallen prey to today's wokeism, gender confusion, Hebrew Israelites, various cults, various kinds of twisted spirituality. The time, and any time we, we don't address current cultural issues like these, then we confine ourselves to our own box. We have created boxes out of denominationalism, right-wing Christian nationalism, left-wing left -wing Christ, uh, uh, critical Christendom, which I call it, what's critical Christendom? It's a term I've, I've coined, which means a Christian version of critical theory. If you understand critical theory, you realize that at its very core, it's anti-God. Things like that. And the best way to break free from our box is with a correct understanding of our contemporary situation from a biblical perspective and a fresh application of the Word of God. Now, how did Jesus deal with the first century Jewish box? Because he came up in the, in the Jewish situation, and guess what? It was a box. The Bible says that Jesus' ministry in Judea was gaining in popularity. The growing number of disciples was getting the attention of the religious establishment. 
And yet Jesus did not conform to the expectations of the religious establishment or the restrictions of the religious establishment. This establishment said, you don't go near Samaritans. Jesus said, the heck with that. The ministry of Jesus was also misunderstood as a political movement. Because he did not want his ministry to be misunderstood, he wisely decided to get out of town and head north to Galilee. And why? Because it was time to burn through the Jewish box. There were two routes to Galilee. The shortest and best route was a straight and well-paved road through Samaria. The longest and worst route was a dangerous winding road through Jericho. This road was known for violent crime. The Good Samaritan incident happened on this road. To many Jews, any contact with the Samaritan would defile them, and therefore the Jews always took the long and dangerous road to Galilee. Now, why was there such hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans? Well, let's look at the background a little bit. The northern kingdom of Israel was conquered. When it was conquered by Assyria, the Assyrians deported all but the poorest Israelites. And they resettled Israel with captives from other countries. And these new residents brought their own pagan gods and pagan religions with them. And what they did, they mixed it with what was left of the worship of Yahweh. The result was a dumpster religion like Hinduism. If you ever study Hinduism, there's no central doctrine. It's all kind of a hodgepodge mix of everything. And in time, they developed their own Samaritan box. From the time of Nehemiah, the Jews and the Samaritans locked horns with each other, culturally, politically, religiously, in every other kind of way. The Samaritans said, oh, we'll help you build a temple. And the Jews said, no, we don't want your help. Actually, it was a plot to derail the building of the temple. By the time of Jesus, there was a lot of bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. I'm sure they had their own derogatory terms for Samaritans. You know, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> when you look at Moses talking to God at, in before the burning bush, God told Moses, Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, the God of the Hebrews has sent you. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, the God of Israel sent me. Pharaoh said, I don't know who you're talking about. The God of Israel, I don't know such a God. The God of the Hebrews, oh, now I know who you're talking about. You ever wonder what was going on back then? See, Israel was a term of dignity. Hebrew was a derogatory term. It was their, their N-word, if you, if, you, if you catch my drift. And of course, Pharaoh, being all stuck up as he was, he said, I'll deal with you as long as you stay in your place. <laughs> I love the way God breaks stuff like that. <laughs> Praise him. So, as we look at our passage, we see that Jacob's well was at the foot, foot of Mount Gerizim, okay? And this was the center of Samaritan worship. This is their Vatican, I guess you could say. 
It's a major historical site. The time of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman was about 12 noon. Now, get, catch my drift here. It was an unusual time for anybody to come to fetch water. In fact, it was the worst time to fetch water. She probably chose that time to avoid contact with other women in her community, you know? She was alienated from her community. She was an outcast. From a Jewish perspective, the Samaritans were the folks across the tracks, too much like us to be foreign and too different to be us. They were the folks of that strange religion, a strange mixed up religion. Some aspects were sounded right, yet their religion as a whole was a confused mess. She was alienated from her own community. She was written off by her community as a lowlife. Now, if you look closely at this woman, she was really, in a lot of ways, a victim of a very oppressive, degrading cultural situation. In Samaria, women had no status. Women had no status. And yet and still, women had to have the covering of a man to function in the community. And men took advantage of that. She must have been pretty attractive. A man would marry her for convenience and then throw her away when she was no longer convenient. That's how she ended up with five husbands. I don't think she was a lowlife. I think she was a young lady who was trying to make it, trying to survive. Uh, a young lady who was in a lot of pain. They never, her community never found out why, the reasons why she was, she was in this predicament. They just condemned her to, her to her situation. They oppressed her and then condemned her for being oppressed. And she was not expecting to find anybody else at the well. She goes to the worst time of day because nobody's there. And here comes, oh no, here comes somebody, oh, it's a Jew too. <laughs> Expletive deleted, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a man. Why was she so surprised? Because men rarely come to the well for water. You just don't see that. And she was surprised that he was a Jew because no Jew would be caught dead in the presence of a Samaritan woman. And then she was stunned that Jesus asked her for a drink in a way that presupposed the correct, uh, a yes answer. If you read the Greek carefully, Jesus is saying, you will give me a drink, won't you? Who, the, who is this guy, you know? If we're gonna break out of our box, then we cannot play the role assigned to us by the world. Our approach must be always biblical yet creative, innovative, and unexpected. She had a cynical response to Jesus' question. You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? In other words, she's saying, we Samaritans are dirt under your feet. Until you need us for something. 
Who the heck do you think you are? <laughs> Here you're gonna, you have the nerve to ask me for a drink. Jesus did not react to her flippancy or, 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 or to her bitterness. She was bitter. She was angry. She was hurt. He did not take her negative reaction to the situation as a negative reaction toward God. I want you to check that out. You go out here to the hood. You start talking to these young men like I do often. And you will find that they have a negative reaction to Christianity. I hate Christianity. Jesus is nothing. Don't take that necessarily as a rejection of God. Because if you find out what they are reacting to, you might discover that you would react to it too, the same way. Right? Talked to an atheist one time. And uh, I said, describe this God you don't believe in. He described him. I said, oh, I get it. Well, in that case, I'm an atheist too. He said, well, 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 what do you mean? I said, well, let me describe the God that I believe in. And I began, he said, oh, I, I, I can relate to that. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? A lot of people react to Christianity out of bad experience, out of pain. Don't necessarily take somebody's negative reaction to Christianity as a negative reaction to God. She was reacting to Judaism, which was disobedient to God at the time. In fact, Jesus was already in touch with her pain. He was more interested in winning her than winning the argument. And therefore, he did not debate the merits of the Jewish box because he was out of it. He did not spout the standard reference, uh, rhetoric of the Jewish box. He appealed to her curiosity with a concept based on her immediate concern. And what was that immediate concern? It was water. But of course, he was talking about a gift that was greater than ordinary water. And she's thinking about meeting her physical need, you know? She, it's, it's a hard thing to run up to the, or go up to the well that time of day. <laughs> and at the time, I think she was too much in pain to think of anything deep anyway. She just wanted to get, wants to get done what she wants to get done right then. And, and, uh, and thus to her, living water meant fresh spring water. <laughs> She couldn't understand how Jesus could supply this because he had nothing to draw with. He didn't have the technology. But Jesus was patiently leading her to realize her deepest need. She was throwing cold pricklies at him. But he ducked him. And he was presenting her with warm fuzzies. <laughs> And he was leading her to reveal her core concern. He's looking for what her core concern is. Of course, he already knew. But he's looking to get her to admit what her core concern was. You know, you'd be surprised. People that seem the most hostile toward the gospel. They have a core concern. They have core concerns that are directly addressable in Scripture. She appealed to... 
our father Jacob to flaunt her importance to this strange Jew. Yeah, you may be a Jew, but our father was Jacob. And who was Jacob? He was Israel, remember? She says, we're the true ones. Like the Hebrew Israelites say, we're the true Jews. All right. <laughs> she was acutely aware of the low opinion that Jews had of her people. She says, yeah, we are somebody. Because she was alienated from her community, her community gave her hostility. It would seem that she would have every reason to agree with the Jewish attitude towards the Samaritans. Yeah, those are no good people, but what does she do? She identifies with the, with the uh, Samaritans against the Jews. This is an example of identity politics. She may have been totally disregarded and totally mistreated by her people, but now she's going to jump up and say, yeah, I'm Samaritan and I'm proud, right? Because she had a greater enemy, the Jews. <laughs> well, Jesus knew the real issue was not theological. It was historical. It was cultural. It was ethnic. It was dominant versus subdominant. Because Jesus understood this, he did not dispute these issues. He just brought her back to the issue at hand, water. Verses 13 through 14, Jesus emphasizes the difference between water in the well and the water he was ready to give. These differences. Wet water would quench a thirst temporarily. Spiritual water would quench a thirst forever. Wet water would be drawn up with hard work. Spiritual water would bubble up from within. This woman did not get the deep implications of what Jesus was talking about yet. She just wanted to save herself the hassle of, and the long trip to the well. That's all she's thinking about. She ain't thinking deep. Until Jesus throws a bombshell at her. All right, you want this water? Go get your husband. Oh, 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 whoa, no, no. Now we're getting deep. <laughs> uh, it was politically correct to do that, by the way. That's the way you would do it. You don't want to talk to a woman for too long by yourself. You say, hey, go get your husband so there'd be no, no question about what we're doing here. <laughs> it was strategic because it put her into a dilemma. Because she, she could not uh, get out of the situation without admitting her real need. All of a sudden now, she's confronted with something that's the other. She, Jesus has been peeling the onion all along. You know, when we go, when we do ministry, by the way, that's the way we should do to people who are not believers. Deal with their issues and peel the onion. Layer after layer after layer after layer till you get to the heart. She had no husband to call. 
She did not want to confess her painful life situation before this strange Jew. After all, what business, uh, what business was it of his? So the conversation suddenly went from small talk to personal talk. And she was shocked that Jesus knew all about her life situation, yet did not condemn her. Jesus took time to take her seriously and to affirm her humanity. It was obvious to her that Jesus was a different kind of a man, not a male. Her problem was that all her life, all she knew were males, but she had never met a man until she met Jesus. Well, he was not playing word games with her. His un-Jewish behavior was beginning to touch her life in areas that had been locked up for many years. Remember, Jesus is out of the Jewish box here. She couldn't handle this kind of reality. All this time she's been throwing cold pricklies at him thinking that she's succeeding. And now all of a sudden, he's speaking into her life and it's very un uncomfortable. So therefore, she tried to divert Jesus. First, she tried to disarm him by calling him a prophet. Okay, you're a prophet. Give him some strokes. That ought to get him off her back, right? <laughs> and then secondly, she spotted her Samaritan box rhetoric at him. She dredged up the old controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans thought that God was to be worshipped at the foot of Mount Gerizim, where they were. And the claim was based on uh, history, when the, the Jews would, uh, would, would hear the law read, and, and people on one of the mountains would say the law, on the other mountain they would pronounce the curses and the blessings. That was historical. And of course... She's basing her whole identity on something that's merely historical. You can't base your whole identity on something that's historical. The only thing that can take the weight of your whole identity is an identity rooted in God himself. That's it. The Jews thought that God was to be worshipped in Jerusalem where Solomon's temple once stood. Because, after all, Solomon himself worshipped at this temple. There's this big argument going on. Where should God be worshipped? And Jesus was not going to get into this endless field of discussion. He did not argue from a Jewish perspective, nor did he argue from a, uh, a Samaritan perspective, but from a transcendent perspective. He says, the time is coming when you worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And yet, Jesus called her dumpster religion for what it was. Verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know. In other words, for the Samaritans, the more mysterious and irrational it was, the more spiritual it was. And for the Jews, the less mysterious and irrational it was, the more uh, spiritual it was. So they're, they're going in the opposite direction. Jesus made it clear to her that true worship is spiritual worship, and spiritual worship is honest worship. 
And she longed all these years, she had been longing all these years for an open and honest relationship with a man. And yet, she was unwilling to, open, to be open to an honest relationship with God. She had to understand that God was not confined to a place, that God could not be limited to the restrictions of a box. And then Jesus gives her something, one of the, the four descriptions of God found in the, in the New Testament. He says, God is spirit. The other three instances in John, 1 John 1, 5, God is light. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Hebrews 12, 29, God is a consuming fire. We're really getting deep here. And she finally, after all this unpeeling un of the onion, she finally gets honest and reveals her own longing for God. She gets all that bitterness and all that hurt, she gets down to the core of it. And she says, I know Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. All this time, all this suffering, all this pain, all these years, you know what her deepest heart desire was? It was for the Messiah. You'd be surprised what people's longing, deepest longings are. It was for the Messiah. You see, the Jews down in Judea, which we, we can call the Bible Belt, they had a distorted view of who the Messiah would be. And if you read scripture, you will notice that Jesus never identified himself as the Messiah in the Bible Belt in Judea. Never did. But in Samaria, with all their messed up religion, with all their confusion, with all the rest of that, they at least had a correct understanding of who the Messiah would be. And uh, in spite of her messed up religion, her situation, Jesus says, I am he. Well, that's kind of deep. People who had all the knowledge, all that, they didn't understand who the Messiah was. And here this woman, that's hopeless, seemingly, had a correct understanding. Guess who was working in her life all along? It was God himself. He was setting her up to be hostile toward the Jewish box. And that made it possible for her to be open to God. And so, like a lightning out of the blue, she drops her water jar. She forgot what she was coming there for. She runs back to the town. Come here, a man who told me everything I'd ever done. Could this be the Christ? And here the, the Samaritans come out, and <laughs> she said, he's told me everything I had done. I'm sure there's some guys around there, so I don't, I don't want to be exposed. Let me go out and protect myself. And it's interesting. Listen to the response of the, the Samaritans, these people of that confused, messed up, dumpster religion. 
Guess what they said? Verse 42, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Talking about the woman. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man is the savior of the world. They would never have recognized that in Judea. But these people recognized who he was because Jesus was out of the box. Breaking out of the box is not an impossible task. We find in Acts chapter 8 that the church in Samaria was flourishing. The gospel was communicated to the Samaritans, not as an extension of the Jewish box, not as an extension of the Samaritan box, but as the fulfillment of their God-given long longing for messianic revelation of truth. Now, who are the Samaritans to us? This is missions time, right? We're talking about missions. And when you think of missions, you're talking about, think about getting on a plane and flying over to some other continent. But let's look at who the Samaritans are to us. We may deny that we have a tendency to have our own church box. But on closer look, gives us a revealing picture. Now, let me ask you some questions. Now, let me say this, first of all. Let me say this, first of all. Most of what we do in church today is not mandated in Scripture. Uh-oh. 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 I'm in trouble. Right? Hey, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'll get myself out of this. These things may be right, might, might be good, and, and, and all of that, it's good. It's good to be in church on Sunday morning. Don't, 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 don't get it twisted now. We do a whole lot of good stuff in church. <laughs> but it's not mandated in Scripture. Does that make sense? All these things, it, it is, is it necessary to have a pulpit in church? No. Is it good to have one? Yeah. You bet your bippy it's good, right? <laughs> for example, for example, where does the Bible say we must assemble at 8 a.m. and 10, uh, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning? Where, where? Show me the scripture. It doesn't say that, does it? But we meet at 8 and, and 11, right? Is that a good thing? Yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> but if we met at 7.30 on Tuesday night, it would be okay too. By the, by the way, if you really want to know why we meet at 11 o'clock, generally it's because in the rural time, in the rural areas, it was between the morning and afternoon milking of the cow. That's why. That's why 11 o'clock came up. <laughs> Praise him. You ever wonder why we have candlelight services and all that? We're following an old tradition. Candlelight services, right? Why do they have candlelight services? Because it was dark and they needed light. <laughs> Praise him. Okay. Where in the Bible does it say that we must have a church building? Hello? I just got back from Cuba. All right? And it is amazing what the church is doing in Cuba. It is exploding. Guess what? Churches are exploding. They're house churches. They don't have any buildings, but it's exploding. Don't get me wrong now. I know y'all think about going to an expansion and all the rest of that. Don't, don't get it twisted now. I'm not criticizing for that. 
But what I'm saying is, you don't have to have all that to have church. All right. Uh, according to Acts 2.42, the church was a community devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and the breaking of bread. That's it. That's all you need to have a church. Today, there's a lot of talk about reaching the unreached. And this is certainly at the heart of the Great Commission. But we too often forget about the disreached. This woman at the well was disreached. She had a negative impression of Christianity or of Judaism of her time. Uh, you know, who are the disreached? There's plenty of them here in Jackson. They are the de-churched. Do you know people who have been through church hurt? You know people who have been through church? They're the disreached. They don't come to church because they've been hurt. They weren't hurt by God, they were hurt by the church. And if you get to them and begin to deal with them the way Jesus dealt with the woman at the well, you'd be surprised what their longings are. Another group of disreached with, well, I'd say, uh, you know, the, the unchurchables. You know, we talk about the church and the unchurched. There are the unchurchables. These are people who are allergic to the non-mandated things we do in the church. Look, I know what I'm talking about. I'm an unchurchable. I grew up in church. And I had to sit there, hear music that I hated, in a woolen suit in the summertime without air conditioning. Every time I hear hymns now, I, I get hot flashes, you know. <laughs> However, God came around that and reached me by a couple of other unchurchable guys who had come to Christ. You got me? All right. Do you know the, un the unchurchables are the fastest growing segment of the American population today? If we can figure out how to reach to the unchurched, we'd have a mega church in two weeks. Um, a lot of these unchurchables long for God. That's why they go, that's why they go to the, the Hebrew Israelites and things like that. These are our Samaritans. There is nothing more absurd than a person who claims to be mission-minded and yet fails to go beyond their box. Our ability to go to the ends of the earth with credibility will be determined by our commitment to go to our Samaritans with integrity. After Pentecost, the first recorded international, uh, case of international ministry was Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, why was Philip chosen to do this? Because it was Philip who had already broken out of the box and planted a church in the Samaritan city. We must remember what Jesus told us in John chapter 20, verse 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father sent Jesus from the heaven zone to reach us, so Jesus sends us from our box to reach others out of the box. This is the real test of obedience. It's okay to do missions work in Africa or Cuba or wherever. That's great. But what about our Samaritans here? The de-churched, the unchurchables. I'll just 
give you this comment. In my last pastorate, I had two congregations. I had two congregations. I had my church congregation, which I preached to every Sunday and did Bible studies with. But I had my non-church congregation, just some brothers out here. They'd get together with me, and they'd ask me these questions. And I'd give them biblical answers. I'd impart biblical wisdom to them. We'd chop it up together. And it grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. Because they were hearing wisdom from God without all the trappings. Each of us should be about that. You've heard of the word clergy, haven't you? Right? Clergy? You know what that means? What's a clergyman? It's a minister, right? In the book of Acts, the Bible applies the word clergy, which is the Greek word klepos, not to the pastor, but to the congregation. Y'all are clergy. And you have ministry wherever you go. Whatever you do, it should be a ministry. So Jesus sends us out of our box to reach others. And this is the test of obedience. If we break out of the box with a fresh application of the word of God, then breaking free of the box will be a breeze and getting to the ends of the earth will be a snap. It would be no big deal to go from here to India and be able to minister because you're free from the box. Breaking out of the church box. Breaking out of the box. Think about it. Pray about it. Let's see what God will have you to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage. And we, we ask that you will give us the grace to do what you did. You came from heaven. <laughs> As the book of Acts says, you built a house in our neighborhood and live with us. We beheld your glory, the glory of the only Son, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We pray that you'll guide us and give us missional wisdom to recognize the unreached, 